Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. Welcome back to the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, we're talking to Anita Ramaswamy about Adam Newman's latest Andreessen Horowitz-backed startup and Amanda Silverling about teens flocking away from Facebook. Before we get into all that, here's what else is going on in tech news this week. HBO Max announced it's removing 36 titles from its service, including 20 originals. The streamer has been quietly culling its catalog in preparation for its forthcoming merger with Discovery Plus next year. Creators are vocally angry about the move, and it's raising questions about what happens to content that's just unavailable anywhere when streamers make calls like this. HBO Max is likely doing this to cut back on residual payments, since if the content can't be streamed, no royalties are owed. You can read more about this from Aisha Malik on TC. Shopify wants to give creators on its platform more revenue opportunities. It launched a Collabs feature that allows creators to find and partner with independent e-commerce businesses. It's a formalization of a type of partnership that you probably already see a ton in your social feeds, namely creators being paid to push specific brands and products. You can check out all the details on the launch from Aisha Malik on TC. Speaking of e-commerce, Meta has invested in Singaporean startup TakeApp, which helps merchants sell using WhatsApp. WhatsApp has long found use far beyond messaging in various regions, and it's been used as a marketplace for many years now, aided by third-party tools like the one made by TakeApp. TakeApp basically offers low or no-code options for e-commerce sellers to create a simple website to make it easy for people to buy their wares with direct WhatsApp hooks. For more, check out Paul Sauer's article on TechCrunch. Supersonic commercial passenger plane startup Boom has a new customer, American Airlines. The airline will purchase up to 20 jets from Boom once they're available. Boom's Overture jet will be able to carry between 65 and 80 passengers, and the company expects them to begin operating commercially by 2029. This isn't Boom's first customer, despite the fact that it only now is in the process of getting its first small-scale demonstrator test aircraft flying. United and Japan Airlines are also partners on the commercial side, while Northrop Grumman and the U.S. Air Force have partnered with the startups for government and military use. You can read more about this on TC from Rebecca Bellin. First up, Anita Ramaswamy is back to talk about Flow, the Adam Newman business that has raised $350 million from Andreessen Horowitz, which is the largest check A16Z has ever written. Hey, Anita, how's it going? It's been a crazy, crazy busy week. I uh, started my Monday with the bangs. Yes, indeed. Back again. Now you're our resident Adam Newman expert, oh, which is a dubious honor, to be sure. Never thought that anyone would say that to me, but here we are. <laughs> so back in the news again with a new investment led by Andreessen Horowitz. And the company is called Flow. And I know this was confusing to me and possibly to readers as well, but because you had covered and you came on this very podcast to talk about an investment previously in something he's co-founded called Flow Carbon. So this it turns out there's a family of Flow companies, yeah. it seems like. A lot of, lot of flowing going on. <laughs> It's yeah, there's there's a lot of jokes to be made there, but I'll refrain and say that this okay. is a different different startup than Flow Carbon. So Flow Carbon raised $70 million led by Andreessen Horowitz in May. And it mm-hmm. was a startup that is supposed to do like carbon credit tokenization on the blockchain. And this doesn't do that. Yeah. And Flow, which is the <laughs> new startup, which just got $350 million fully from Andreessen Horowitz at a $1 billion valuation. Mm. That was reported by the New York Times. They didn't share those metrics directly. So that was the news on Monday. And that basically 
I mean, it was a completely different venture, right? So they're focused on residential real estate and sort of revolutionizing that market, so to speak. So this is not Adam Newman's first new venture, but I did think one thing that was strange is that he was listed as a co-founder of Flow Carbon back in May. But it seems mm-hmm. like even though his name was on the press release, they weren't marketing him as being too affiliated with it. Like they, it seemed like, you know, both sides, both the company and the investors were sort of trying to keep him out of that. And now if you go on the team page for Flow Carbon, he's not even listed. And in the meantime, Flow Carbon has also put a lot of their activities on pause. They were going to, I think, do a token sale, which they ended up pausing because of crypto market conditions. So now we've moved on. We're on to Flow and Newman is no longer listed on the Flow Carbon team page. And strangely, Andreessen has, you know, in their press release about the Flow investment this week had said that this is Adam's first venture since we work. Right. So a lot going on there, but... It sounds like, I mean, it basically sounds like they are trying to do a specific kind of storytelling and that nothing, the timing didn't exactly fit their storytelling. Right. So they've just fudged some of the details a bit to move things around. Yeah. I mean, there's been some back and forth about like his level of involvement in Flow Carbon, but like his name was on the press release. Definitely he was a co-founder. I don't really know what's going on with them trying to change that up. Well, especially with the name similarity. I mean, given that Newman himself comes from a company that once used we as sort of a... The cult of we, the power of we. <laughs> right. But we led, the, it was like we whatever. And the we work was one of the many companies, right? And so... We flow. We flow, Daryl. <laughs> we know he has a habit of doing it. I'm just saying. So maybe his flow carbon got ahead of his flow whatever. And then also he kind of was like, maybe this isn't such a great <laughs> idea after... All the market went against him. And I don't know. I think it was just some shenanigans to do with marketing and perhaps like a turbulent, perhaps, nature of Newman and his preferences and his interests and whatever else. But anyways, I mean, that's a very interesting part of this story that I think merits further exploration, but like not the part that we want to focus on today, because I, I am genuinely interested you know, it's $350 million, I guess, in his wheelhouse, if he has a wheelhouse, which is real estate, right? Yeah. And there's been a lot of Twitter reaction. I think the low-hanging fruit has been well exhausted at this point. The dunks uh, have been exhausted, this. yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. He's been dunked on quite a bit, right? I mean, even in our back channel, I'll just tell a little bit of tales outside of school. Like, there was kind of a comment about, like, well, why, you know? And my immediate response was, like, he made money for these people, right? Like if you're somebody who was yeah. an early investor we work, and we talked about this before, Anita, like you made tons of money on it, even if a bunch of other people lost a ton of money on it, right? So you're going to bet on your repeat winners. And a win looks very different if you're an early stage investor at the scale of injuries and Horowitz than if you're, say, a bank or a realtor lessee or something later on, right? Yeah, absolutely. And some of those, you know, deeper conversations about, you know, the dunks and the reaction, just want to throw it out there that I am on the Equity Wednesday episode this week talking about that. But I guess moving, you know, back to some of the news that, that you want to chat about with these VCs, like, yeah, a win looks totally different for them. And I think that's part of why I would venture to guess Andreessen Horowitz has written its largest check ever as their investment in this company. And that's what really stood out to me about the news. Yeah, absolutely. It's significant, right? It's not like it's just they wrote a check, which I think itself would have been newsworthy. It was that is the largest one they've ever cut to a single person, right? Do you know how much, does anyone know how much 
WeWork made Andreessen? Did they make the money? I guess is the better question. I'm not. I'm not totally sure about that. Actually, I think the narrative has focused a lot on SoftBank, but kind of like what you said, like the earlier stage investors, like their return profile looks completely different. Right. So I guess regardless of that, Andreessen Horowitz likes to back these sort of contrarian founders, and yes, they like a good comeback story. And I think one thing I've been trying to keep top of mind is like, you know, even if a founder sort of fails in their first venture, the likelihood of success after that is a lot higher. So. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's also worth reminding folks, especially like maybe listeners of this podcast aren't as close to the VC side, but they're, they like the tech side. But like the VC side is specifically to make bets that don't have good likelihoods of paying off right on really big swings. And so it kind of fits that profile perfectly for this particular person. Right. He's shown it. He's very good at some of the really, really important parts of company building, right? Yeah, yeah. Raising capital, for one, is a, definitely <laughs> yeah, a skill and yeah. a talent that he has. And he did lose a lot of value for WeWork. I think it was about $40 billion is the estimate. <laughs> you know, it, it, which is not great, but at the same time, like you said, that is sort of the VC game. And this is a big, ambitious idea from someone who has at least some experience and track record building a billion-dollar company in the space. And he's coming in. And I think key to why this might have resonated, at least with VCs, is that it is a market that's super ripe for disruption. Like rent, for sure. he's focusing on rentals. Yeah. No renter likes the current state of how that market operates. And it's totally something that it's time for a startup to come in and disrupt. Now the question is yeah. like, is it flow that's gonna do it? I don't know. Yeah, you're right. And renters like specifically, I think you're right to call out, but even landlords aren't really thrilled about the state of it, I would say. I mean, a lot of them are thrilled about the money they're making maybe, but not about the actual day-to-day process of being a landlord and a, a sort of a building owner, right? Unless they're just like a slumlord, in which case you don't care at all. Well, I live, in, I live in New York, so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I will say that the landlords here are not always uh, the friendliest individuals, but. I'll, I'll refrain from no, making blanket statements. <laughs> well, just make specific statements about people you want to call out. No. <laughs> Blackstone is actually uh, my landlord. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we'll just leave that there. We'll see. Uh, maybe they'll adjust their practices. But for me, yeah, I was kind of like, okay, I can see why they would do it. I think there's a separate argument to be made. And this is not, it's not one that we have time to make here. And I would appreciate the validity of this argument that like, it just is perhaps... Like there's a moral element, right? And there, there is definitely sure. that. And that's, I mean, that comes in with any financial market and any financial kind of like large scale investment operation, whatever. But there is an argument that like, is it morally acceptable to invest in someone who definitely misled some people, right? Maybe not criminally, not at the scale of say like a Theranos or something sure. or Elizabeth Holmes, but like, at what point do you say, all right, this guy could make me a ton of money, but is the money that I would get out of that sort of like morally upstanding or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's a tough question. And, you know, unfortunately, it's not VC's jobs to even think about that, which is why I think sometimes they struggle maybe to draw that line. But at the same time, like, yeah, I mean, it's totally a moral question. And I think there's a lot of bad blood between Adam Newman and probably his former employees who were not treated very well and who didn't hear a lot of their concerns actually be addressed. 
And so I think that's a pretty risky bet from that standpoint. It's not so much like that VCs should necessarily be weighing the morality of their investments, because that gets into a broader question about the morality of our economic system, which I'd be happy to chat with you about (laughs) on another day. (laughs) But, um, you know, I do think it's more about like, isn't that a risk? Like, that's kind of what I was confused about. You know, there's all this talk about like Gen Z and like, you know, the trends of like consumers and consumer preferences are trending towards wanting companies to take a more active role and a more active stance when it comes to some of these moral or social justice related issues. And this seems like an investment that flies in the face of that. Absolutely. It is a genuine risk, but it's one that I'm sure Mark Andreessen and Andreessen Horowitz were aware of and factored into their calculation, right? There's tons of reputational risk, especially when you're in the same operating theater, right? Because if he's working with large scale property owners who maintain some of these rentals, they're probably some of the same people who owned a lot of the leased spaces that he used for WeWork, right? Well, one thing that stood out to me in the announcement of all of this was about how Adam, you know, he's a visionary, he's built this real estate business, but he also will learn from his mistakes and move forward. Mm. And how do we, how do we gauge that? How do we know whether Adam Newman is really a new man? Like, how do we know? Oh, how do we know? (laughs) Is that a headline or? I I don't know. I just (laughs) spat that out. It's out there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the only other thing about this is like, what do you think? It's, it's interesting how bold Andreessen has been about it. I mean, do you think that they come out, does this become something that they can sort of hang their hat on in the public and start talking about more publicly? Did they seem interested in discussing it f- further or was it sort of like, we want to make this big statement declaration and then we're going to kind of let it lie? I think they want to talk about Adam being involved, which is really mm. intriguing to me because he is this polarizing figure, but you know, they've succeeded in doing one thing, which is garnering attention from people. And I think that, you know, a lot of people are willing to look past. I mean, I'm not really assessing the moral practices of what Blackstone does on a day-to-day basis. I moved into my apartment because I like it. Right. And so from that, that perspective, like if he is able to build a business, you know, that's sound fundamentally, then the marketing and a lot of the attention and the hype, like it's already been built. And frankly, like we're even doing that on this podcast, whether, whether we like it or not, and certainly not intentionally. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that's a great point. And I do think, yeah, there's no denying that it was an attention-getting move and that it, like, I mean, with $350 million on the table, it's not like it was just that, right? Like, they obviously see actual material value in this. So this definitely sets up the stage for that to play out. And I think it gives it as much oxygen as it possibly can. And it it got the dunks out, right? But I feel like it already has moved the conversation like we're having right now, past the dunks into like, okay, but what is there that's materially here? Because there has to be something at that kind of valuation from these people, right? Right. And we don't know what the terms of the investment are. I will say though, that when it comes to this question of like, is Adam Newman really going to change? Is he really going to learn from his mistakes? Like it wasn't just mistakes that we were, in my mind, it was a lot of like intentional maneuvers on his yes, part, absolutely. right? Where he like, bought the trademark to the word we, and then like sold it back to himself. So you kind of never really know what the guy is up to, but you got to believe that Andreessen Horowitz has thought through all of those things and probably structured the deal in a way that, you know, they're ensuring that they get paid rather than just Adam. (laughs) They're like, look, we saw your book of tricks from before. All of those are off the table, at least as they pertain to us. And we don't really care about what you do to anybody else. I'm sure it's something like along those lines. Right. Right. So he, he doesn't even have to learn or, you know, change or anything like that. It's more so that all of the things that the VCs want, I mean, they're going to get what they want because they know they know his tricks, like you said. Yeah, they're excellent at extracting value where there is value to be extracted, right? So, all right. Well, thanks very much, Anita. I look forward to our future 
lengthy ethical discussion. Oh my gosh. About- Next time Adam Newman fundraises <laughs> in like two or three months, we can have that, Daryl. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. We'll see what flows next. (laughs) (laughs) Next, we talked to Amanda Silberling about where Gen Z is spending all their time online. Spoiler alert, it's not Facebook. Hey, Amanda, how's it going? It's going well. How are you? Great, great. All right. So we found out, I think what everybody suspected, well, just more evidence of what everybody suspected is that the teens, they don't love Facebook. They don't love the blue app. Or the blue website or anything nope. about that. <laughs> Don't you love when multiple studies and the company's internal data all show the same thing? And it's just like, wow, I love like data confirming itself. Yeah, that is, is I mean, it's great because it's somewhat rare, surprisingly, but yeah. this is very nice. Well, because Facebook itself has reported that they had their first ever user decline in a quarter last year. Right. And that hasn't happened again, but in their past few quarterly earnings reports, it's been like slightly more usage. So Mm, it's like, they're not really growing. Like it's pretty stagnant. And especially among young people, as this study shows, people just don't use Facebook anymore. Right. And so this study we're talking about is a Pew Research Center study, which is a venerable old polling institution. I be, I don't know their actual history, but I know that they've been mentioned for probably as long as I can remember. <laughs> so I feel like it's a long time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so what this found was that only 32% of US teens, so that's between 13 and 17, use Facebook at all, which is quite the decline. So what was the other number, the previous number that you found to compare it against? So in the same survey that was done in 2014 to 2015, they found that that figure was 71%. And then even back in 2013, it was 77%. So this has been a decline that's been going on for the last decade. Yeah. So, well, I mean, and it seems like I'm not a mathematician, (laughs) but I'm doing some quick math in my head. And I feel like that's a sharp increase in the in the decline. Like if people are leaving quicker than between that 2013 to 2014 period, in the intervening years, people have really been just like dropping off quite a bit. Yeah. And it's funny writing this because while I was writing it, I realized like I graduated high school in 2014. So when I'm looking at these stats, I'm like, okay, well, what was I doing in high school? Like in the like (laughs) 77% of online teens used Facebook in 2013. I'm like, oh no, that's me. But like- And was it you? Were you on Facebook? Oh yeah. I mean, I feel like, like I feel like I would be on Facebook to like talk to people about homework. Also just to talk Mm. to people. But even as this study found from 2013, a lot of teens, even though 77% of them used Facebook in 2013, a lot of them felt negatively about the platform. And I'm like, I remember that. Like, I remember updating your profile picture was a huge source of stress because it's like, what if enough people don't like it? And then you would get Mm -hmm. DMs from people like, hey, can you like my profile picture? Like, I'll like yours in return. Oh, no. Like for like. Yeah, (laughs) like for like. I remember a bit of this. I mean, I'm the, <laughs> when I was in high school, I don't think Facebook exists to really date myself. But I think that one of the things I remember happening a lot, which surprised me at the time about social media usage, was there was this thing probably around this time that you're talking about. But like on Instagram, too, people would post pictures. And then like if it didn't get enough likes within a certain period, they would just delete it. Yeah. And it's gone from their grid. Right. Because this 
This was still grid time, mm-hmm. which we're not in grid time anymore. But Oh, yeah. And then my friends were nerds because, of course, look where I am now. And <laughs> they would, like, study the analytics of, like, what's the best time of day on Facebook to post a new profile picture? Like, they were, like, wow. they were running, like, a brand website, but it was actually just their personal Facebook. <laughs> Amazing. So you can see where the negative feelings come from because that generates a ton of stress, right? And then, like yeah. you were saying, utility and obligation is what the report said. And like you were saying, like, if you were talking to people about homework or something like that, like that was another thing that people were using it for, I guess. Yeah. And I think part of the reason why we're seeing such a sharp decline is partially, I think, just because of how many times Facebook has significantly screwed up. Mm-hmm. Look at Cambridge Analytica and all that stuff. Like people know about this and it affects their perception of the company. But I think also I bring up me being a teenager in 2013, because I remember like I didn't use Snapchat in high school. And now Snapchat is more dominant of a platform. 59% of teens have used Snapchat as opposed to the 32% of Facebook users, where the way that they did this study was percent of US teens who say they ever use any of the apps. Right. Yeah. So it's not about frequency or anything, but as a general indicator, it seems like it lines up with what kind of where my assumption would be. There's not really any surprises on this graph. A TikTok, I noticed, like, you know, it's the first year, right? So there's no trend line, right? But it's yeah. pretty high up there. It's 67%, already beating Instagram. Snapchat is hot on the heels of Instagram. And Instagram's line isn't going up that quickly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Instagram is also kind of, I don't know. I mean, I don't use Snapchat. I feel like that's like the only major social app that I just like don't use. But I feel like on Instagram, there is sort of that same attitude of I hope my photo gets enough likes. And I don't think that's totally gone away. But I think maybe with an app like TikTok, I think not everybody is a creator on TikTok. Like a lot of people just use it to watch videos. But on Instagram, I feel like most people do post things. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And I think that that is like a reason for it to be higher usage because it doesn't have the pressure to perform perhaps as much as the others, which is kind of ironic because the Mm -hmm. performances on it are very elaborate. But it's something most people I know, again, anecdotal, but (laughs) most people I know who use TikTok use it as a consumption app. Yeah. Like by and large, like many, many, many. Also, interestingly, I also don't use Snapchat and don't really know anyone who uses Snapchat. But I feel like that is something... This is the most unscientific discussion <laughs> of usage ever, but I my feeling is that it's an app that is not used by people like us who would find ourselves in this industry and who would find ourselves in like the nerdy details of all of this stuff. It doesn't seem to be like a tech industry darling, but it does seem to be just, I know people from my hometown or like they do not touch the tech industry in any way, shape mm-hmm. or form, except in the ways that you have to. And they tend to use Snapchat. So I, again, very unscientific, but that's what I've found anecdotally. And I'm, I wonder if that lines up with any of your experience? I mean, I was a frequent Snapchat user for a couple years when I was in college, and then I just slowly Mm. stopped using it. Honestly, I think it was when Instagram did stories as well, because... Why bother? Yeah, I mean... They're already over here. (laughs) I was already using Instagram more than Snapchat, and then that's how Snapchat lost me. And then I think slowly over time, I realized that I only had a handful of friends that were using Snapchat and I was like, why am I using this whole other app? It's not like this is the only app where I talk to those people. Yeah, 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 Yeah. for sure. But Snapchat's still going strong. It is still going strong, yeah. And I think that 
Instagram was hoping they could do the same thing. Instagram and Facebook were hoping they could do the same thing with TikTok, but it's a very different scenario to when they were ripping off Snapchat stories, right? Because now you've got people who are, according to this study and like our own experiences, like not feeling great about being in the app to begin with, right? So it's mm-hmm. not like they want to be spending all their time in Instagram like they did before. And it's great. Now you can do this fun thing in here too. Now it's like, all right, you're here kind of begrudgingly. And then also, I guess here's a copied feature of the thing that you really do like. And it kind of just reminds you maybe how much you like that other thing. That's the real deal, right? Yeah, I think also that this generation of teens is more digital native than Mm. like I guess I'm like a young millennial but I mean Facebook didn't exist when I was a small child and that does make a difference in how you think about social media throughout your life and I think that this next generation of teens like the defining characteristic of Gen Z is that like their parents had Facebook probably right and I think when you are so aware of the inner workings of tech from the time that you're a child, you're maybe more attuned to seeing like, hey, isn't it weird that Instagram is copying TikTok? Like, doesn't that make you a little annoyed at Instagram? Yeah, yeah, because before it was fringe. Like, we reported it, but not everybody was reading that. It wasn't mainstream news, and now it's kind of mainstream news. So it makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. I did, I also wanted to talk about YouTube because I thought this was kind of surprising to me, and basically it's just that YouTube is like, what, dominates. Like, everyone says they, 95% of the respondents in this survey said that they use YouTube. And then there was the almost constantly thing too, which was like a lot. 19% of teens say they use it almost constantly, which is larger than the buckets for anybody else. Although Mm -hmm. TikTok is close at 16%. But that was surprising to me because I didn't think teens, I thought that YouTube was kind of losing its steez, so to speak, with teens as well. But like, seems like not. I think YouTube is just such like a massive... There's just so much sheer content on YouTube that I think there's really something there for everybody. The 95% figure is really drastic. And for whatever reason, Pew didn't include YouTube in the 2014 to 2015 survey. So we don't really see the trajectory. But I guess in some ways, when you think about like, I know people who when they're doing work, like they don't use Spotify, they use YouTube to look up whatever music they're listening to. Or people... Probably lo-fi chill. Oh, to... oh yeah. Um, lo-fi beats <laughs> to chill too. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's what accounts for all of this. No, just kidding. <laughs> or like people that kind of just play like long form YouTube content in the background in the same way that you would like watch a sitcom in the background while you're doing right. chores or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I guess there's just so many different ways to use YouTube. That in some ways I kind of get it, but then at the same time, mm. the almost constantly bit where 19% of the U.S. teens surveyed said that they almost constantly visit YouTube compared to 16% on TikTok and funnily enough, 2% on Facebook. But yeah. I guess on TikTok, <laughs> like those use cases I described of like watching long form content in the background or like listening to music, that doesn't really happen on TikTok. So no. Comparing those statistics is a little like, damn, TikTok. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When you put it that way, the way you're just describing it, it occurred to me that maybe YouTube has just become TV. Because that's sort of the way people treated TV back in the days when they had the luxury of being able to work 
kind of like, you know, not in an office setting or whatever, or like either you would just have TV on constantly, right? Yeah. Like TV was just on as the, and I know people still to this day who have like screens in every room of their house. And they're just putting a CP24, which is our like 24-hour news channel. It's just there showing traffic and weather and rotating through it all the time, right? So maybe that's what people use YouTube for these days. But the thing about YouTube is that unlike cable news, it has an algorithm. Right, so exactly. It's so even it's more. You. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I messed up my YouTube algorithm yesterday because I was researching a piece I'm writing about VTubers. And now my algorithm will never be the same. Now you must burn it to the ground. Yes. <laughs> Well, congrats, or not congratulations, but good luck uh, trying to fix that. I wish you the best of luck because I hope, you know, I mean, no one wants their YouTube thing to be messed up. It's, it's vital. It's important to us. Yeah, I mean, I... Thanks so much for coming yeah. on, Amanda. Thanks for having me and letting me reminisce about my teenage social media usage, which definitely has a direct impact on what I do now. Amazing. Well, I'm glad you spent so much time on it. I know. It turned out I was being really productive and preparing me for my future job. <laughs> That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on TechCrunch.com. Be sure to use our TC Plus promo code, TC Podcast. that's all one word, to get 20% off on both annual and two-year terms. Also, be sure to check out all the other TC Podcasts, Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.